Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, other podcasts, pop culture. And this week, Ronan Farrow turns his best-selling book into a new podcast. We'll look at the Me Too investigation behind Catch and Kill. Then the journalist behind Dirty John takes us inside a serial killer investigation through the eyes of the department's only female investigator. We'll review Detective Trap. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, the love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Mm. <laughs> what are you doing? In my vocal therapy. Oh. Mm. That's right. You're going to speech pathology now for yeah. your voice. How's that going? Mm. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a really good podcast. It sounds like my yoga class. <laughs> it's, it's very You want to go to yoga with me, Kevin? Uh yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I got Kevin to go for a walk last weekend, and it was a very big deal. Uh, also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and our favorite certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Good evening, Laura. Good evening, Rebecca. And finally, our resident cynic, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, our Patreon book club host, and my favorite subversive slacker to slack with, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. It's me. I'm here. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is. Wow. Can, I can't believe it. <laughs> can confirm. <laughs> Are you sure it's not flat, Toby? Standing in as you? Uh, I'm getting, and maybe we're all getting, uh, a sort of troubling number of requests for how to get a flat Toby. <laughs> all right. You should just make a PDF Ask available. Ask his wife how to get a flat Toby. <laughs> All right, okay. she doesn't listen, so it's all okay. Okay, uh, but Laura, <laughs> I, I, I do think you should make a PDF available that people can cut okay. out and make their own flat Tobies. Can you please do that for us, and then we'll just share it on our social feeds okay. and so forth, that people can like make their own flat Tobies and take them on adventures. It's pretty easy. You make a dotted um, line around it. Yeah, you, you have to like make it like you know real crafty and stuff. Well, I didn't do anything too crazy. I printed out a picture of Toby, <laughs> and I took an old I took an old Latote box, and I cut it out with a handle <laughs> and glued him onto it. <laughs> So, I mean, <laughs> you can all do it at home. Product placement. <laughs> but I'll, I'll sh- <laughs> yeah, I know we don't even have that ad sponsor anymore. But 
Um, <laughs> they have contributed to Flat Toby's rise in the social media world. Reuse, recycle, repurpose. Yeah. The cats are sad. They lost all their boxes all in right. the Flat Toby construction. Jeez. I think we should get like Fab Fit Fun to do like a special promo featuring Flat Toby. They've got good boxes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this is a good time to talk about something that's kind of a big deal. Thanks to Laura Bricker, our resident historian, we realized today that today, as we tape this, Kevin, do I have your permission to make a time reference right now? Yeah, sure. Okay. Today, December 11th. 2019, as we tape this, it is exactly our five-year anniversary of taping podcast together. We taped our first episode five years ago tonight. What do you think? Was it in Crazy. the evening or was it in the it day? It was in the no, evening. No, it was in the yeah. day. Oh, was, was it? it? Yeah, I, yeah I think so. Okay, so five it, years ago today. Oh, my God. I'm an elephant. I remember. It was during the day because I had to get time out of work, and I thought it was going to be a one-time special permission thing, and here we are. Me too. <laughs> and we had to drive all the way to Concord, and they said, let's just try this one thing. I was like, oh, it's just one time. I'm going to need to do this. Uh, okay. Well, I'll sorry to disappoint. <laughs> I'll take some comp time. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, you know what would be fun? Um, I have heard recently from people who started listening to our back catalog how earnest and serious we sounded. So I'm just going to drop a little clip of that right here. Oh, shit. Okay, so this is the first time we're gathering as a group of writers to talk about something we've all been listening to separately. To be fair, I did have to convince you to listen to it for a while, which is pretty shocking, Kevin. Yeah, because I love This American Life. It just seemed, you know, it's funny because it seems like a commitment, right? When you know that this is going to be a 13-episode thing that i mean i think for a listener you have to like you have to get want to get married to the podcast and if it's not good then you're you're stuck but this has been really interesting and i i think that you know it's it's it you can binge listen to this right yeah absolutely i mean I've, i found it took over my life once i started <laughs> listening to it how many people did you all tell about it when you started listening to it well, everybody was already listening to it in my group of friends. Uh, people want to start a serial club similar to a book club mm-hmm. so that we don't have to actually read the book. We can just discuss cereal <laughs> and drink wine, perhaps. We were the worst. We were the worst. <laughs> I, I tell people not to go. I, I say, you know, start about making a murder. Yeah, we didn't swear. We were very earnest. We were everybody very, wants to yeah. know where our reviews of Serial Season 1, Episodes 1 through 8 are. I actually think we should just do the whole season again. I really do, like on well, Patreon or something. explain why those don't exist. Because we started at episode 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we had this idea. I couldn't even get you to listen to Serial for the first six weeks it was out. And then you finally listened and you were like, oh, we should make a podcast. I'm like, oh, it's, it's on episode like eight. And you were like, we should just do it anyway. So we started on episode 10. <laughs> it, was too, it was too much of a hassle to get Laura and Toby to come back and do another one. So I know. Like, I know. Well, I guess that ship has sailed. <laughs> That's what we got. Take what you can get and don't get upset. Well, it's very exciting. And today on our Patreon after show, which is dropping at the same time as this show, so you can get it right now by going to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. We are going to talk a little bit more about our highs and lows of the last five years. It's going to be pretty exciting. I do want to apologize also to Pastor Emily. Last week we talked at length. Uh, They were attacked by a chicken that flew out of a live nativity. We had, a, we had a protracted discussion about whether or not there should be a live nativity in a town. We talked about whether or not there should be a chicken in a nativity. We did not ever say. They were okay. We never said, are they okay? And I heard on Twitter uh, from Pastor Emily 
They are, in fact, okay, I think. Wait, I hope they're okay. I think so. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I mean, I, I did see Pastor Emily driving around, and I think things are okay. All right. But I, I do need to know a little more about Mocha's life, so I might have to report back on that. But um, I was there, and I'm sorry, as I apologized on Twitter, I was laughing too hard to check on anything else <laughs> when the chicken thing happened. You were videotaping. I know. <laughs> <laughs> because the video I got on Twitter, someone was holding the camera and I believe it was you. <laughs> it was me. All and right. I was, yes, yeah, so I was there. All right. <laughs> and the other thing I want to plug on our Patreon right now is we have a brand new episode out of Married with Podcast. Our last episode brought people to tears. Are we going to do that again, Kevin? Well, if it's that bad, sure. No, I don't think we're going to bring people to tears, but it's really going to be good. And Toby, you are about to tape a brand new book club that's also going to be in our Patreon. Do you want to just brag about who your guest is going to be for the next book club? Actually, the day this drops that evening, uh, I'll be recording uh, Helter Skelter with Alex Segura and Amber Hunt. Mm. Amber Hunt also. Accused season three is out right now. That's right. And we're reviewing it on next week's podcast. So you're going to be talking to her before we do the review. You better be nice yep. so she can be prepared for our four huge thumbs down that we're going to be giving her <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Just get Psych. her hopes up. <laughs> I'm fairly excited for that because I have to tell you, I have a family connection. I'm not going to say what to this whole case. Save it for the podcast. Really? And we also, because we've been doing some actual planning... Because um, after five years, I finally created a production calendar. <laughs> we are also going to next week be reviewing a completely bonkers documentary on Netflix called The Confession Killer that Kevin and I have seen. We got an advanced copy a little while ago. We did an episode of um, You Can't Make This Up. It's out now. It's out now, but it is one of the most bonkers things I've ever seen. And I can't wait to talk about it with you guys. So next week is Accused and the confession killer and please support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media we make four whole podcasts for your enjoyment there all right you guys ready to start the show let's do it they ask me ambra could you do something for us and i said yeah absolutely and they said um would you want to meet them tomorrow and wear a wire Ronan Farrow's reporting on Harvey Weinstein shook Hollywood and contributed to a cultural shift around sexual harassment and assault among men often shielded by their powerful positions. Now Farrow is giving us a behind-the-scenes take on his reporting in Catch and Kill, a podcast based on his best-selling book of the same name. The podcast, produced by Pineapple Street Media, kicks off with the story of a double agent, a private eye tasked with surveilling Farrow, but who instead reveals a massive effort to discourage and discredit his is reporting. There are whistleblowers and journalists and spies, literal spies. On the last day when we had to follow you, I get a call early. He said that he's going to do the geolocation thing with the phone. Using audio meant to memorialize his struggles, Farrow recounts in real time how executives at NBC News and NBC Universal slow walked his expose on Weinstein's rape of actresses and cover up efforts while all the time communicating with Weinstein about the story. The story of what unfolded at NBC is a case study in the power of news organizations to safeguard the truth, and in how devastating the consequences can be when they do the opposite. And nobody had a clearer view of that drama, or was placed in a more difficult position because of it, than Rich McHugh. And I said, man, we're either going to get this on the air or probably get fired. <laughs> yep. 
Catch and Kill is part crime investigation, part journalism procedural. It's an inside look at one of the most important stories of the decade, giving casual news consumers a deeper dive into the downfall of one of the entertainment industry's most powerful men. Now we will be talking about plot points for Catch and Kill, the podcast. So to stay spoiler free, skip ahead to the time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, am I the only person on this panel who has actually listened to the full audiobook of Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill or read the book of Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill? I think you are. Okay. So could I just start the discussion then? Normally I'd ask a question, but I'm just going to tell you a thought and then I will ask a question. Rebecca, what are your thoughts? I, when I heard this podcast was being made, I, first of all, the site was being made by Pineapple Street because all of their productions are, have been great. Missing Richard Simmons, uh, Running from Cops, The Clearing. So excited about that. But I also found myself wondering, what could a podcast based on a full book be other than uh, just a recounting of the book, a copy of the book? And I got to tell you, I am thrilled with this podcast. I think it is masterfully crafted to be an excellent standalone and an excellent supplement to the book. So now you guys know that. Do not be discouraged from listening to the audiobook or reading the book because you'll learn more from both that you can't get from either one. Uh, but I do want to start where the podcast starts because one of the most interesting stories that uh, happens in the, the book actually happens much later in the book. It's revealed that Igor Ostrovsky is a private eye who has been tasked with following Ronan Farrow around during his reporting. And he now becomes an interview subject for this podcast and is cooperating with Ronan Farrow and his reporting. Kevin, what did you think about the way they kicked this off? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we know that per the, this podcast is going to be primarily about Weinstein. It will probably also touch on the other big catch and kill stories that are out there, National Enquirer and whatnot. But I think it was uh, it was really smart to start with this part of the overall story because it, it does change up what we're expecting while still giving us a piece of the overall story, but not getting right into all of the um, the misconduct allegations right away. It, it, it plants a flag saying it's going to be a broad look at what happened uh, around these stories and around the reporting of these stories. Laura, as a former private investigator, what did you think of Igor Ostrovsky and his decision that uh, what he was being tasked to do when he realized he was following a journalist around, like he just couldn't do it, and his decision to become a turncoat and cooperate with Pharaoh. Well, I loved it. But I have to say, I mean, this, you know, just to clarify, that was not the type of investigating I did. Like, it wasn't as glamorous as hiding in bushes and spying on people, which I would have loved to do because that's something I love to spy wait, on. Wait, wait. Did, did you have a public bathroom trick, though, when you were doing <laughs> your work? Did you figure out, like, that you could use a public bathroom by going into a nice restaurant, ordering yeah. a drink, and asking for a menu, what are, and no. wash your hands? Well, you drink specials, and where can I wash my hands? <laughs> I didn't have to do any of that stuff. So my no, my life was not as glamorous as, as his, but I really I liked listening to this because I was, you know, first of all, the fact that this guy was like, you know, I know they're paying me, but this just doesn't seem right. But for me, it was like also it kicked right off from the beginning that this was just not an ordinary reporting assignment, that it was to the level that it felt dangerous and it felt like there was a lot of risk in continuing to investigate and continuing to follow leads in this case. I just loved that, that it's like you see people who are doing the right thing in this story. And we see it later on, even in the, the third episode that we're going to talk about later, somebody that did something 
and decided to speak up and speak their conscience instead of doing, uh, you know, what they had agreed to do. Toby, what do you think of the organizing principle of this podcast? You're taking one facet of his reporting with one character, Igor Ostrovsky, in the first episode, his producer, Rich McHugh, in the second episode, and Ambra Gutierrez in the third episode. Um, what do you think of, of the way they're putting this together instead of as one narrative as the book, you know, sort of portrayed? Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that as to why they did that. In some ways, it's good in that they all seem like kind of standalones and, you know, they're all tight. You know, you're not kind of bouncing around to different facets of the story. Unlike Kevin, I wasn't super clear as to why they started off with the PI story because there's no real context for any of it, you know? I mean, it's sort of like, oh, that's weird. And then you you find out later why this happened. And I, and I also think they probably were looking at the amount of other stuff they have out on essentially the same story between all the reporting that was done in the New Yorker, which I have read, and then the book. So it's how do we continue to tell this story in a way that's not going to seem redundant uh, for people who've consumed the other stuff. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's clever. I think it works, but it is, it's, it's different. And uh, I'll be interested to see how the whole thing kind of plays out because you do have these things where, you know, there are things that happen in episode two and episode three that are happening concurrently and they, they kind of have to reference back to them uh, and you have to kind of get set in your mind, okay, this is happening at this time. But, you know, I, I think so far so good. I think they're, they, they've they they've got a pretty good handle on it. I want to talk about Ronan Farrow as a character in contemporary journalism I cannot remember a time in my lifetime, really, when a reporter would come out with a story and we'd hear a reporter by name. You know, Ronan Farrow is dropping something tomorrow. Ronan Farrow is reporting something tomorrow. I can't think of a single reporter, either on print or TV in my lifetime, who has achieved the level of kind of anticipation around his work. And I wonder why. I mean, there's been obviously, you know, Megan Tuohy and her partner, The New York Times, did a lot of the same reporting. Their book, uh, she said, is also fantastic. And there's a lot of not just this reporting, but other big stories happening in the world right now. Ronan Farrow is a star in journalism. And I think it's because he's kind of an odd guy and really leans into that. What do you think, Kevin? Well, this story really catapulted him into that sphere because I mean, when he was on MSNBC and, and like the Today Show, he was considered a lightweight. Yeah. You know, he's doing Jeff Ross and type investigation on the investigative unit and he's doing nail salons and, you know, stuff that's not really hard hitting. And he's like, oh, he's a celebrity's kid. He's Jenna Hager Bush. Yeah. Right. But he's it a, was he's a, a wonderkin, a child genius. Right. Yeah. But all the time, regardless of what assignments he got, we see what a hard-nosed journalist he was. You know, and I think in part, NBC's reluctance to put the story on the air, their efforts to kill it, made him a legend within the story. Mm. Because by the time it got to The New Yorker, everybody's like, wow, not only is this a really great story, but extra-textually, why didn't NBC run this story? Right. And he doesn't use the book or the podcast to really flex on NBC. Oh, he does, though. But no, no. The I, book? He, he does. Oh, okay. The book is like half about that. <laughs> I mean, no, no. He talks about it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, at least from what I've heard on the podcast, and I, I didn't really read the book, but I you, I did hear excerpts from the audiobook. 
they're not cheap shots. No. And he's not being snooty about, oh, what a horrible decision those people made. And you know, he's not calling names, right? Mm-hmm. He's naming names. Yeah. Calling names is different. Right. He has every right to stomp on their grave, but he's not. One thing that I really loved about the book and love about this is he actually he says over and over and over again in the book that he just he wanted to keep his job in TV. He liked working in TV. He liked the idea of being a star TV reporter. But they wouldn't let him do real journalism, and they were stifling this story, which he knew was a story, And but he always secretly hoped they would come around, which is why he gave them so much time to kill it. Like, he didn't walk away with it initially. Like, he kept trying and trying and trying. Uh, so he admits that. And this podcast, there's one moment where he just talks about, and when I said he's kind of a weird guy, he talks about his own personality and that he's- Small hands. No, he does not talk about his tiny hands. Okay. I liked that part, yeah. <laughs> but he does talk about how he won't stop like working and he won't stop texting. Yep. I just want to play that clip. If I'm being honest, I was like, I, you know, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to like this guy. <laughs> I'm, you asked me to be honest. I did. I just remember I, you, you were you were texting all the time. Like, what type, what, you know, is this right? Is that, What are we doing? And I was like, I, I, haven't, I hadn't been used to that level of hands-on. I'm sure that the producers working on this podcast who have any experience of me so far uh, are laughing at this because my work style is very much like I am so invested in every aspect of it and like very controlling and I I love to be collaborative and bring in other people, but I also demand a lot of involvement. If so I responded to one text, like, <laughs> yes, you'd send me like 17 more texts, like, okay, now that you're listening, okay, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Thanks for putting up with that. Literally everyone I've ever worked with. So the other thing we find out in is that he and his producer, Rich McHugh, and I believe Ronan Farrow does this with more than just his producer, and I have reasons for believing that, taped all of their conversations about reporting the story. I'm going to play that clip right now. I think if they know that it's a long way out, then they'll probably just try and go above us and try and kill it in some capacity. Uh, right. He's just going to go to somebody else, not you. You know, some some poncho way above us. He's just going to try to find ways to, to sabotage it. I know, which he's going to probably do anyway. Um, shit. I don't know. This is a confusing one. Laura, what did you think of that? They have all of this tape of he and Rich McHugh in real time discussing what's happening with their story and what NBC is doing with it. I thought this was awesome. I, you know, I loved that we were getting this really behind the scenes window into the reporting and just the level of reporting and the level of, you know, pushing to get this story was just amazing. But hearing it as it was unfolding really kind of took you along for the ride in terms of what it was like. And, you know, I think if if you're going into this and you don't know how this ends up, this could be like some serious rage-inducing, stroke-inducing stuff to listen to because some of it is just so maddening when they're getting shut down. But knowing that in the end, the story is going to come out, the New Yorker is going to publish it, there's going to be a book, it's going to start a movement. You know, you can listen to this with sort of, I don't want to know if vindication is the right word, but like listening to this reporting that's going on that they're documenting, knowing that this is going to pay off. And um, wow. Um, so it was, I, I loved listening to it. So I've got a question. Yeah. I don't know if he gets into this in the book, but I thought one of the interesting things was, is so you have this guy who clearly is a, is a very smart and dogged journalist, but what's also kind of unique about him is that he's comfortable 
in sort of the celebrity culture, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just given who his parents are. And so I don't know if he's at all reflects on the fact that in some ways his upbringing, and I don't mean like his the style of his parents, because that seems a little weird. Um, <laughs> Does it? <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, but just, just the world in which he grew up in gave him, like he talks about how, oh yeah, the, I only met Harvey once at a at a yes. you know, cocktail party yep. or something, gives him a sort of entree and also understanding of that world that I don't think there's any other sort of substantive reporter working who who would have that. You're right. You're right. And, and he does talk about that. The book, he talks about the fact that celebrity, he would he would contact them on Twitter through instant message because they'd be following each other. And he knew that his celebrity helped with that. Like that would be his sometimes his entree. And he's very. You know, it's funny because he talks about his his parents and he, by the way, he does refer to Woody Allen as his father in, in the book. But he also makes reference to the pervasive and let's face it, very likely true rumor that Frank Sinatra is actually his father in the book. There's like one line Just about they it. Just because they look exactly alike. <laughs> that's all. There's like one line about it that's actually quite funny. And when he sings karaoke. He, yeah. he addresses it in a very funny way. But um, But yeah, he does talk about that being and he knows he's like. The one thing that I really appreciate is he A, acknowledges he's a pain in the ass. B, acknowledges that he secretly still wanted to work in TV, even though he knew it was wrong. And C, acknowledges his privilege over and over and over again. And he acknowledges that he wasn't the only one doing this reporting. He talks about the reporting of the New York Times team. His goal was to get the story out. He was not thinking like I have to beat them. He just wanted to get his reporting out. You know, I was thinking about those real time recordings of the phone calls of the the you know uh, him and his producer talking to one another we hear an awful lot in podcasts this performative trope of okay let's come into the studio and i am going to tell you as the reporter what i found out let me tell you about my data journalism mm. or in um bundyville uh the remnant like guys come in here let me show you what i did with these photographs ah but it's still performative these recordings are done without the intention of being part of a podcast or with the idea that they're ever going to see the light of day. Right. You know, they're just more like files and notes and memos, which makes it really interesting. And I think adds not only just this layer of authenticity, but you're more into the narrative because, bam, you get just dropped right in the middle of it. Right. I mean, I think that uh, Ronan Farrow talks in the book, and I'm sure he'll get into it more in the podcast, about his quotes, and this is in in the foreword, a lot of things are quoted verbatim in the book, and the and the question that he raises in the forward is people ask me, like, how do I know? Like, how do I have this quote? Whatever. And he said, all I can tell you is this reporting went through the same vetting as my New Yorker reporting. The quotes are authentic. I can't always tell you how much I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I can't always tell you how I got them, whatever. I actually believe he records a lot of material or, or is in the habit of... I don't think he does it subversively. I don't think he does it illegally. New York is a one-party consent state. But I do think recording is one of the ways that he takes notes. That's like his very thorough way of documenting stuff, like logging everything. I don't think he secretly recorded sources. But I do think he has aptitude for recording as evidenced by his interaction with Ambra Gutierrez. For weeks, I pressed Ambra to give me the audio. I would have wanted to give you those recordings. And of course, they didn't want to make trace of where it was coming from. And then I said, well, what if we just... Record the recording. Record the recording. (laughs) And it allowed me to say, 
she never transferred any files to me. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> that was the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Lara Bricker, we need to talk about this. Amber Gutierrez was a Harvey Weinstein assault victim who made a report to the police. I should say alleged probably, right? But I probably shouldn't because there's actually tape of it. Anyway. Uh, she took a million. They gave her a million bucks. <laughs> That's true. I mean. She uh, reported to her assault to the police. They set her up to do a sting. They gave her a wire. Harvey Weinstein essentially confessed on the tape. She, uh, you know, ended up having to settle. We hear what everything happens in the podcast. Ultimately, she agrees to be a source for the book. And it turns out, despite the fact that she had to give up all of her devices and all of her stuff, she had retained a secret recording of the wire that she recorded herself. Yes. And then Ronan Rivera recorded her recording. What did you think yes. about all this, Laura Bricker? <laughs> I loved it. I was like, yes. I was like, she is awesome. I was like, totally awesome. Because as you're listening to this, I was getting so angry in the beginning of that episode, listening to how, you know, she was, everything was totally being turned on her. She wasn't being believed. They're trying to be like, oh, you're a prostitute in Italy or whatever. I'm like, fuck this. And then when she takes the, the money, I'm like, no, don't do it. But when this came out and she, they, she goes to this, well, they asked for all my passwords, but I had all these other emails. So I forwarded everything to myself, pretended I didn't know the password, downloaded it to a friend's computer. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then um, how they got around like the NDA by having her not give the recording to Ronan, yeah. but play the recording so that he, I was like, she, good for her. So I, I that was definitely um, sort of a very good episode at the end to kind of be like, yes, you know, power to the people and to, you know, wow, um, good for her. What's Italian for uh, password one, two, three? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know my password? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Toby, what did you think of that section? I mean, it's it's like suspenseful in that it happened, but I think that she's a really good storyteller and their their interaction with each other. It's like a two-way is very often a very boring way to tell a story. But their interaction with each other to me, even though I kind of like knew what happened already, like you know, the sort of way that they build the conversation in the podcast, but then hearing what she actually did. What did you think of that section? And what do you think of Amber Gutierrez, Toby? I thought what was interesting about their conversation is it is kind of like they were doing this thing together. So they're sort of recalling this crazy thing they did together and how it worked out. So I thought that that dynamic was, was cool. I uh, well, I can't remember. Right. It might have been even in the comments on our Facebook pages. Somebody had said that, you know, Ronan Farrow is so brave. So he said, well, he's... He's really good at getting other people to do brave things. Mm. You know, not that he's not brave, because clearly in keeping with journalists who usually aren't on the entertainment beat, I mean, what he was doing was dangerous. I mean, he had people following him and, you know, I, I think he had reason to be be scared. But in this, especially in this particular case, like he manages to get her to do things that, that really kind of put her in jeopardy. But clearly she's brave. Um and, you know, resourceful <laughs> when she loses the signal, when she's, what is she in the elevator mm -hmm. going up to the penthouse? Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, how the hell does that happen? Mm. Like, I don't know. How, how is your equipment that bad? <laughs> um, it's an elevator. Yeah. I mean, honestly. Surrounded like, by concrete. Exactly. It happens. Yeah. Okay. I just sort of assume that you must be able to pay for something. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, Black Cube can pay for it, not the NYPD. <laughs> Kevin? What do you think about dancing on the grave of the news outlet that killed what ended up being the biggest story of your career and catapulted you into stardom in your own right? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I mean, I said this before, I mean, I think that he handles it very well uh, because he could be very snide about it. And I haven't read the book, so I don't know what the tone of it is. But he he reports on that. He tells you what happened. In, a, in an objective-sounding way. doesn't sound like he's embellishing or making unnecessary digs. We are certainly left to make the inference that they were wrong, that there wasn't enough to go over the story. And he backs it up with saying, oh, there were phone calls and emails and whatnot. And I don't know if this was in the book or whether this was just you and I talking, but certainly it seems like perhaps the leverage that Weinstein had over NBC wasn't just, oh, we have all these deals we want to do with Universal, but that he knew something about Matt Lauer. I think that's implied. Because... It all crashed at the same time. Yeah, it's implied. And it's because Weinstein had the relationship with the National Enquirer, dude. And the Enquirer has dirt on everyone. That becomes very clear. There's a whole section of the book about that dude and the vault. Oh, I hope we get to that. The Trump files and the files on all kinds of celebrities. The catching That's where the name Catch and Kill comes from, is the National Enquirer's habit of killing these kinds of stories like the Stormy Daniels story and and so forth and the Matt Lauer story was one that apparently had been caught and killed over and over and over again and then obviously NBC knew about Matt Lauer's misconduct because there had been complaints and there had been separations some quote quotes with money attached but yeah I don't think it's a coincidence personally that Matt Lauer was fired so soon after this story broke uh Toby one quick question for you before we wrap There is an interesting thing here. I mean, obviously, we hear that Weinstein himself was on the phone with the corporate masters at NBC and NBC News, and they were giving him information and he was giving them information, which is bananas. And he was sending them alcohol as presents? Grey Grey Goose. Goose. Yes. Which you think, I mean, that's just liquor you can buy at the liquor store. It's not like super fancy, right? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, but the but the the sort of the idea of exploring that relationship between the corporate overlords and a news division. Do you think that's something that you'd like to hear more about in a podcast like this, Toby? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's sort of a pervasive problem, but this is one of the more clear cut examples of the corporation telling the news division, "Don't do this." And if 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 breaking news was the only uh, thing that you were worried about, like there's no question you would run with this story. Again, I think it's a pervasive problem in, you know, certainly television news because they're all, uh, all these networks are owned by bigger companies. And, you know, I think it's been that a case in, in print journalism as well. So on that note, support your local public radio station, support your local <laughs> exactly. ProPublica outlet, support nonprofit news, honestly, the Texas Tribune, ProPublica, your local radio station, New Hampshire Public Radio, whatever your local outlet is, support it. Because we don't do this shit in public media. <laughs> we just don't. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's go around the horn and let our listeners know, do you give a thumbs up or thumbs down to Catch and Kill, the podcast from Pineapple Street Media, the companion project to Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? I'm going thumbs up. Uh, you know, I haven't read the book. And so I was kind of going into this a little bit blind. But I don't think it matters if you've read the book or not. Um, because this is just a really interesting behind the scenes look at how um, how this story was reported and what went into bringing the story of Harvey Weinstein out. And just there's some really badass people in this that pushed pretty hard. And I love some of the characters. So I would say thumbs up. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Catch and Kill the podcast? Yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up. I, I 
I was going to give it a thumbs up, but I think after our conversation, I I think I feel better about it. <laughs> I'm not sold. <laughs> well, you know, I just I kind of came in as being like, you know, it, it's definitely it's entertaining. It's really well done. But it also seemed like the third in a line of things that's coming out from this one story. Right. So that it's not the premier way that you would you would give this information because you've already done this reporting, you've done a book, and now you're doing a podcast. So it's like everything's kind of trickling down to this, and you're trying to figure out how to make it work. That being said, it's certainly an interesting enough story. He's good enough, and I, I think the concept for how they're doing it is strong enough that they make it work. Uh, the Deep Dive's doing Catch and Kill, uh, in April, I think. So oh. I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll sign up for that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love this podcast. I had relatively low expectations, even though I know the people making it are great podcast makers, because I figured what else am I going to learn or get from it, having completely devoured and loved the book so much. But I do think it's kind of brilliant because the book is really about reporting the story. It's about the story, but it's more about reporting the story. And the podcast is about reporting, reporting the story like it's incredible it's a layer of meta that's going even deeper his interview with rich McHugh to me really stands out because you know he talks about the rich McHugh stuff in the book but in this we hear rich McHugh talk about him you know i thought you were annoying like i think they put us together because they wanted us both to quit you know and to me it's like it's fascinating to get sort of that look into reporting to me it's like the journalism story some of the best media that's ever been made in my opinion like the all the president's men for instance uh, is about reporters trying to get at the truth and that's what this is and I I just love it I think it's a great podcast what about you Kevin well I'm a big thumbs up a thumb that's bigger than Ronan Farrell's whole hand uh, <laughs> oh it's so mean sorry Ronan he does have very tiny hands he does have tiny hands it's so cute that you look, think he's listening to this right now <laughs> <laughs> look it's, it's true that he is squeeze just about all the juice out of this tangerine but it is really good stuff it's a good tangerine it's a good tangerine it's a big okay it's a grapefruit whatever uh yeah i mean it's a, it's good stuff i keep thinking like this is gonna make a fantastic movie like all the president's men or the insider then i keep thinking man like a studio is probably not going to do this <laughs> because none of them have executives staffed with all saints and angels and somebody <laughs> is going to get accused of something and, uh, you know, they're going to stay away from it because, you know, it is about bad behavior, but not just bad behavior, criminal behavior. Can I just ask you a question? Yeah. If you got a message at work that Ronan Farrow was trying to reach you on the phone, wouldn't you be scared completely shitless? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it depends on what you assume. That's true. That's I true. would not assume he was coming after me about an allegation in my past. No. I'm sure he wants me, he probably wants to call me up and yell at me for my small hands jokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but look, it's a great, great podcast. I am going to stay subscribed. I want to listen to all that he has to do. And, to, you know, wh where it separates from the book is that we actually hear from those people. Right. We don't have to hear him doing a Ukrainian accent. That's true. <laughs> I mean, you love the accents in the audio book. I have but. mixed feelings about the accents in the audio book, but I came to enjoy them over. I just realized he had to do it. It's just, that's Ronan Farrow. He leans into his weirdness. I love it. Yeah, it's a classic podcast looking at a very important story. 
Moving on, the Los Angeles Times and Wondery tell the story of an Anaheim homicide investigator as she looks into the murder of several prostitutes. Dirty John host Christopher Gofford returns with Detective Trap. The titular character is assigned the case of an unidentified woman found in a garbage facility. Soon, Trap realizes her case may be related to that of other missing women in Southern California. When the women first began disappearing from the streets of Santa Ana, California, no one saw a pattern. We used to walk that street at 3 o'clock in the morning. People would ask me, are you crazy? I don't care. That's my daughter I'm looking for. Nothing's going to stop me. For months, even as more women vanished, police did not regard it as a high-priority case. It's always the same story. Oh, every cop has their flyer, don't worry. I told him if I was a wealthy woman, you'd be looking for her. I go, but since we don't have money, you don't care. Then a young woman's body was found in a trash sorting plant, and the case came to an Anaheim investigator, Detective Julissa Trapp. Gofford uses the five-part series to profile the department's only female homicide detective and seeks to mine her personal and professional story for the sake of the narrative. To walk into an interrogation room was to play a character, she liked to say. And that began with the right costume. It was a strategy and advice I got from an FBI agent when I worked sex crimes, that pink is a soft color, it's very approachable, non-threatening, and so that was something that I traditionally wore. I, I reached for those first, and it just didn't feel right. Detective Trapp gives a closer look inside a frustrating murder probe through the eyes of a likable investigator. In an era where the failings of law enforcement are the prime focus, Gofford gives us a heroine he wants us to root for. We will be talking about plot points from Detective Trapp, so to stay spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Now, Laura, you are unabashed. You love Detective Trapp. Yes. And you're a little bit scared of her. Tell me why. Yes. Well, I love like as soon as I started listening to this, I'm like, wow, this is like I can't even believe she's a real person. She's so badass. But I don't want to be on her bad side because I think if I met like the English version of her, whatever it is they call her, like English Julie. She tends to smile when she's like yelling at people or giving her tone. And I think it's comical. So if she's telling somebody like, don't you think you should have did ABC one, two, three? whole thing will be in British Julie. British Julie. I was like, she's just out there. And um, but she's also really forthcoming about a lot of information about her own life and um, really just uh, on a whole nother level. But um, yeah, I wouldn't want to be on her bad side. Now, Kevin, um, Dirty John's appeal, a, a part of it was like diving into the lives of the main characters to provide context to sort of give like the setup for where Deborah and her daughters were in their lives when they met John and why they made the choices they made. Goffer does that again with this story. And I think he does it well. Okay. Tell me about that. I, I really felt like I got to know this character. And by, you know, I'm I know we're using the word character. Yes. To describe. It's called a character, but, even if it's nonfiction. <laughs> That's just the way it is, guys. He he does some good character development by explaining her disappointments, her triumphs. You know, I mean, they set it up that it's it's unusual that a, a female in this department would be able to rise through the ranks to be a homicide detective. So, you know, there's something special about her. So what is it? Tell us a little more about that. It's more than just what she does on the job, which is fantastic. I mean, it tells you something when you say that what she used to do was be a, uh, an undercover prostitute uh, and would just snap off lines from Pretty Woman 
uh, because that's how she amused herself while doing her job. Some undercover detectives will approach a John's car on the passenger side to put distance between themselves and the driver as they assess him. I've just made the decision to to go up to the driver's window so not only I can get a clean wire, but I can see who I'm dealing with. And, you know, if there's a gun in the car, if there's somebody else in the car, I have a better look. And then that unfortunately does open you up to them sometimes touching you. Um, and <laughs> I, I have been groped and uh, you... I just kind of play it off. I slap their hand very playfully and I say, you can't get that for free and kind of make it work and, you know, back away. So I think she ends up being a relatable person. Do you think it would have been better to start with a murder? I think, you know, it's a classic way to start with the scene of her about to interview Mm. a suspect. Yeah. Because you're going to come around to that. And it does set up for the audience that we're going to get that. You are going to get that in this podcast, Mm. an arrest and something, and we're just going to find out how she got there. Um, I, there was an awful lot in episode one about the victims and about her, and not a lot about the crime. If I would just sort of jigger all the pieces on the, the game board, I probably would have had the discovery of the body somewhere in episode one. Mm. But that's a quibble, and we always talk about just how would you order things. I don't think a lot of people dropped off and didn't come back for episode two because they didn't really know about the crime. I'm really fond of a lot of balance between the main story and these subplots. All right. Well, I am going to go to our panel's contrarian right now because I want some cover because I am also (laughs) going to be a huge contrarian this week. And I would like the cover of Toby Ball to uh, help me get into my contrarianness. Toby... You asked a provocative and interesting question that I would like to just explore a little bit. You sent me a note. How is this different from Red Ball? Now, Red Ball is a podcast that was recently produced uh, at the kind of like the behest and with the cooperation of a police department. There's been a lot written about There's a really interesting Indianapolis Star article kind of written about how problematic that process is in terms of like the way it blocked out journalists and, you know, basically served as some propaganda for that department without a lot of scrutiny. Um, And you sent me a note that this is also an idealized version and there's no sense that there's anything but access here. And I'd love for you just to talk about that a little bit. I haven't listened to Red Ball. I just sort of, you know, read about and thought about sort of the controversy that uh, surrounds it and the idea that, you know, once you get access like that, you're compromised. And then as I was listening to this, like, hey, the access is incredible. I mean, he's basically there for everything, gets her thoughts on everything. And then there's no pushback on anything. Around 8 p.m., Gordon grabbed a box cutter and jumped on his bicycle. He pedaled hard through the parking lot and sped out onto La Palma Avenue. One of our surveillance units decides to have a little, a little meeting with his bicycle, and uh, the front end of a surveillance pickup truck and the rear of his bicycle tire meet, and uh, Stephen goes for a little flight. She's the hero, and you know there's no ambivalence about this. There's no conflict there, right? There's no conflict, right? Yeah, she's she's, you know, I have no doubt that she's a really good cop, and and you can. You can tell that stuff, but it does kind of bring up, you know, if, if the if the LAPD 
had as as in Red Ball, supposedly that police department had some kind of final say in what got into what content got into the podcast. Like, what would they cut out of this? Mm. And I don't think there was anything that called into question anything that she did, anything I, I think that the police department did, unless she got frustrated with the the mood, how slow some things were, but I don't recall that either. I just wondered why that why it wasn't as much of a issue. I just haven't heard anything about anybody questioning this podcast about the combination of access and sort of uncritical. It's not even really reporting. It's storytelling. Mm. Laura, do you have uh, thoughts about that? Yeah. So I looked at it from the point of view like this is not like an investigative expose on something. This is more to me like a feature story retrospective now that the case is concluded, going back and reflecting on the case and going through the case with the person that was the lead detective. And I mean, I can tell you, I've done stories like this uh, where I've gone out and, and uh, you know, interviewed police or investigators when there's been a big case and you go back to sort of sit down with them when the case is resolved to sort of go through. But the other thing that I look at is I can't imagine that this guy who's a journalist at the Los Angeles Times wasn't like fact checking all the information that he was getting and just taking it at face value. Like, I'm sure he was doing some legwork to make sure that everything was accurate. So I didn't look at it like propaganda for the police department so much as it, it is a story. And it's it's told in the story, like the storytelling format of like almost like a detective novel in the way that it's recounted and, you know, her as a protagonist in this story. So I think it would be different if it was an unsolved case that they were trying to find answers to. I mean, and there are some things that aren't solved in this case, whereas this is a case that has been to court and already been, you know, mostly resolved um, in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to the question is that in this case, the story control is retained by the LA Times. You know, so as far as deciding what goes in, there's no indication that the police department had a say. It's not like cops. It's the LA Times doing that. Right. You know, if, if every story about a cop has to include negative or critical aspect to their career or the case in order for it to be credible or enjoyable, then we're just not going to do that. What, is, what does the police department have to gain from it? It's a good story for them, just like it is for any other entity. And if police didn't cooperate with these stories, three people on this panel would never have a book to write. Hmm. I have a another take on what Toby's saying because I agree with him. It does. It feels like this is the choice that was made. It's, I, it feels also to me like a feature story about a cop who solved a case and how she did it. And it does feel like there's nothing in here that I wouldn't approve of if I were police a police department. Okay, so that's on the table. My problem with that, which is one of two big problems I have with this podcast, is that there's no conflict. And the same thing happened with Dirty John. It's It was a tell me, you're just telling me what happened podcast. It's not like a real story where there's like, you know, you get to a point and there's a question about whether or not something's going to go the way we want it to. It doesn't feel, there's not a lot of tension here. And I, finding and, the killer. But, that's I, the but story. I didn't feel that tension. That's like the- we knew that was going to happen. Like they basically set it up. So as you said, the beginning of the podcast is she's walking into interrogation room. We know she's going to find the killer. We know she's going to do all these things because he spends a lot of time telling us what a great cop she is and she always gets her man and she's the best interrogator and she's this and she's that. 
there's no conflict and there's no doubt in my mind as it when I, when I say conflict I don't mean travails and, and, tra- and like issues that she has in her life I mean I am never in doubt for a second that this is going to turn out okay for her that's what I mean by conflict and you know a oh, narrative I, okay I mean uh, I mean that's you've written stories you know that a narrative yeah. is supposed to have no, I think you're just obstacles like, if this were conflict. a romantic comedy you're saying I had no doubt that they're ever going to that that couple's getting together. But there is conflict in romantic comedy. You know that the second act is always conflict in any kind of story, whether it's a comedy or a I'm drama sorry. or whatever. When they're looking at a body in the middle of a giant, that's not that, that's not what I mean by conflict. But that's what conflict is. But it's not what I mean. Well, what is what I mean is we never doubt that she'll win. We'll never doubt it. It's not like a thing where it's like she's an underdog and we can't believe I, she wins. It's not like they set it up in any other way like she won't win. And that's 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 what I mean. I mean just in terms of a story. And that's that's the style of Dirty John as well. And Dirty John, yes, there's the difference between this and Dirty John is there's that huge twist at the end, which is yeah. not set up. And that's what makes it singular. So your note is either that they artificially enhance the no, I didn't say it was artificial. Or they don't do the story. I don't. I think the story should have been built differently if it's going to be a feature of this cop who ends up winning. I think it could have been built a little bit okay. differently to and have include some of that. Yeah, I, I guess I I don't want to leave the impression that like there has to be some kind of anti cop thing or you have to tut tut about the way cops do their work. So I don't I don't feel that way at all. But I you know I think similar to what you're saying, it's a very smooth ride. You know, it's like. It's a very, and I, I think you were, you were basically saying the same thing, is that it's sort of uncomplicated. Mm. It's like you've got the you've got the good guy, you've got this investigation that, with the minor exception of, well, I guess there's two exceptions. One is they don't dig through the garbage, and then she has a she can't figure out who that 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 Jane Doe is at the end. But for the most part, things it moves from point A to point B. Without much of a hitch. Now, Laura, you love the details and you love the character. So I'd like to give you a chance to sort of like defend that part of it before I'm just going to warn you in advance. I get even saltier on this, uh-huh. on this podcast. Whoa. Um, well, you know, what you guys were saying is like, you know, I didn't mind that there wasn't like all this extra tension in the story because I liked the way the story was told. I once I started listening to this, I listened to the whole thing in two days and I was just like, waiting for that last episode and I couldn't wait for it to drop because I liked the way that he wrote the story. I liked the type of details that we had in terms of, you know, learning about her childhood and what it was like in high school when she left home. Um, I loved the information, you know, kind of setting up when she met her husband and how they hated each other because, you know, Fireman Ken and I hated each other when we first met. And I was like, oh, look at that. I don't know. And, and that how, explains like, a lot. Yeah, how he <laughs> carried her bag for her. And then, but I then just the details, because I was like, you know, when, when I'm doing stories, when I was, you know, doing like newspaper articles and things, I always ask like little details that I just love to sneak in, like, what's the pet's name? Or like here, what's the brand of cookware she's using? What type of things are they cooking in their kitchen? What type of whiskey are they drinking? Or whatever it was. So I liked all of the scene setting. And I didn't listen to this as some like big dramatics, like tension filled thing more as just sort of an enjoyable ride. It was just well told. It was well produced. And um, she was a compelling character. Kevin, I have a couple of questions about the case for you. Yeah. What the hell is the purpose of GPS monitors anyway? That's a great question. <laughs> that is a great question. I mean, if it isn't so that, you you know, it, it verifies your home arrest, if it's just so you can walk around, and if it's so, well, we'll know if you leave the state. Right. Or get near a school. Right. I think. Get near a school is part of it. It seems like, you know, it's, it's like, do we want somebody watching dots on a computer all day, checking to see where 
people go. Or in a way, it's like it did exactly what it was supposed to do. When we go back later, we can say, oh, yeah, this guy was here. He was here. He was in the area of a crime. It's a good clue. Oh, he's cavorting with someone he's not supposed to. But it seems like proactively, there's not a lot you can do with it. Or, or at least, you know, they're not doing what we they probably imagine they'd be doing with it. Don't you guys, any of you use Life360 for your kids? And no. your spouse. No. Oh my God, I love it. I just was watching Ken come home and I was seeing how fast he was driving on the highway. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Never. look. And then I can click on the name and I can see all the places that everybody in my family has been during the day. Never. So they can't hold. Never in a million years. I but saw. Multiply that by thousands. But we, but we, I we love it. Yeah. yeah. We saw, we saw a report on the news tonight about like somebody whose like uh, camera, internal security camera had been hacked and like they had a camera in their kid's room and somebody was talking to their kids pretending to be Santa. Claus in their room and I'm like my first question was why the fuck are you spying on your kids with a camera in their room that is creepy as hell (laughs) anyway um, I do use find my iPhone though to see where my kids are sometimes to be real anyway um, so all right I'm just gonna I just gotta say it I think this podcast is sexist as hell and it really rubbed me the wrong way Um, I was trying to figure out what was rubbing me the wrong way with it in episode one I'm going to acknowledge that our protagonist you know, told him this story and, and you know, maybe wanted it to be included it sees it as, as a part of her story. But the length of time, which was approximately half an episode spent talking about Detective Trapp's struggles becoming a mother and her inability to have kids and her multiple in vitro fertilizations and how her inability to become a parent is what drives her to solve crimes and be a cop, to me, is one of the most criminal acts you could possibly do in a story where you are trying to highlight the outstanding work of an accomplished, capable woman professional. She liked to be in control, but the world of IVF stripped away every illusion of it. Didn't her whole career prove the link between obsessive focus on a problem and the conquering of it? She was in homicide about a year when they tried again. She stayed home on bed rest, crocheting a baby blanket as the embryo grew. They looked through baby name books. If it was a girl, she'd pick the name. A boy, and Eric would pick, provided her mother could pronounce it. They heard a heartbeat. She carried for just 10 weeks. Whether or not she sees that as a reason why she feels a certain way about X, Y, or Z, it is very clear that she was a great cop before she had fertility issues. They say she was quickly promoted into this realm and she was quickly promoted into this role and she was always like somebody that people looked at as like a rising star in the department. And if she wanted that detail included and it was a short passage that sort of spoke to her motivations, that's great. But I am so freaking sick of the role of a woman being A, Look at this extraordinary woman and how amazing it is that she's such a great cop. I'm like, why is that extraordinary and amazing? A woman can and should be a great cop. What's extraordinary is that she's the only one. It's not extraordinary that she's great. It's extraordinary that she's the only one. And B, that the value of women and women's motivations and women's ability to do good work is so often tied in narratives like this to their distinctly, quote, feminine qualities in this case, her inability to and longing for children. It's the same bullshit that Law & Order SVU did with Olivia Benson for 15 years. I hated it then, and I hate it in this real-life story, and it really pissed me off. Am I the only one who feels that way? 
It's okay if you guys say yes, but it really rubbed me the wrong way. I see it differently, but all right. <laughs> well, I guess I just, you know what I thought as I was listening to it? I thought she she probably, he's a good reporter and she probably opened up and shared this about herself in a way, like, I don't think she would have shared it if she didn't want it included. And she may have shared it thinking, hey, this sort of explains me. But I mean, I, I see where you're coming from, but I guess I just, when I listened to it, that's how I looked at it was like, it just added some depth to her character with her uh, tattoos and everything as well. What did you think, Toby, about the sort of portrayal of a woman cop in this way? Like like focusing on her domestic life, focusing on these things, and then, you know, pointing to her being a woman over and over and over again, to me, superseding the work that she was doing, which was clearly great work. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I had the same issue, although... It sort of had the added thing for me as being such a, you know, and again, it's, it's, I'm sure it's true and I'm not like trying to in any way lessen like how hard that is, but again, it's not, it's, 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 it's put in a way of motivating a woman in a way that a similar thing wouldn't be used. Like if, if, if you were talking about a detective, a male detective who he and his wife are having a hard time conceiving, you would not be spending a lot of time talking about how that was motivating him. Never. To do anything. Never. Never in a million years would they do that. Never. Never would they do a story about her husband, say he's also a star homicide detective. Never, ever, ever, ever would their inability to have kids be anything other than a passing detail in a story like that. I guarantee it. It's not important. This is a serial killer investigation. And again, I, I, I kind of feel like even though I'm sure it's true in this case, it is something that's come up again and again in fiction. And I didn't even think about that part until uh, Laura was talking about how they didn't like each other when they first met each other, she and her husband. But then, you know, they came around and and it's like, yeah, that happens all the time in fiction, mm. you know, uh, so it was adding these sort of fictional elements and it's not that he's fictionalizing them, but he's highlighting these things that I think are sort of uh, that you find in fiction and using that to kind of propel the story either in a little brief burst or in like this sort of longer thing about about her trouble conceiving. And it's and it's weird. Like if you even think like I sent you that little. <laughs> Can I read what you sent me? Can I please read it? Please, please, please just say yes, please. Sure. Okay. Don't be offended, people. Okay. Here's what Toby wrote me. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing about Detective Frapp. He has a secret. He's always wanted children, but he has a low sperm count. It's come to inform everything he does. He spent thousands of dollars trying to get his count up. And though there were times when it would crawl into the low to normal range, it never quite worked for him. But he could use it sometimes. I think of it as a weaponized empathy. I watched as he talked to victims' fathers. Do you have any kids, they'd ask Detective Frapp. None that were able to escape my seminal fluid, he would answer. <laughs> and the fathers would receive this news with a grim nod. He got it. Oh, I know what Toby's next book. No, but like, be. but no, wait, then that's, that's exaggerated. <laughs> but is it, that is just how this story was told, okay. but only because it was a woman. Can I push back on one thing and of ask course. you a question? Sure. You first say that there's not enough external conflict, and now you're criticizing them for trying to create internal conflict. Which is it? I don't think this created much story conflict at all. It was just a detail about her that they stretched out into half of an episode. How is that conflict? It's part of her history. It's not creating a, a, a difficulty in her doing the job that she's set to do in any way. They're saying that she's better at her job for it. Okay. She was good at her job before. 
I don't know. It just, I'm sorry, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Okay, so I'd like to talk about what I think is the best part of the podcast and see what you guys think. The ending? The interrogation. Okay. Look at him and look at me. Do you think... If you're going to ask me if I think he's capable of strangling a girl... By himself? I know he's small in stature, but he's still a guy. And he's, he's still muscular. Okay. And, I mean... Do I think that Frank, okay, I'm, I'm a little taller than him, and I'm trained. Do I think that if Frank had it set in his mind to strangle me, that he is capable of it? Sure. Not to you. You're trained. You okay. know moves. But what about a regular girl? A tiny girl, because some of these girls were tiny. Okay. Right? You mean to tell me that you don't think Frank is strong enough to do that? We hear a lot about police interrogation, and we hear a lot about bad police interrogation, This scene to me was fascinating. 13 hours, very detailed, went into a lot of the minutiae, the ordering food, what they ate, uh, an area where the details really serve the narrative. Kevin, what did you think of that scene? You're not going to point out that it was illegally obtained? It was an illegally obtained interrogation? Well, the judge threw it out because (laughs) should have read Miranda. Well, there's that. There's that. (laughs) Look, I thought it was very, I thought it was great tape. I thought this was the kind of stuff that we want. We want to be the fly on the wall. And so, you know, we're able to do that. And this podcast is called Detective Trap, so it's about her. And so now we get to see her do the thing that, you know, everybody says she's good at. This is her skill. She's the closer. Mm. She can get this. And then we listen to it. Yeah. I think I thought it was very good. Laura, what did you think of the interrogation scene? I just thought it was I thought it was really interesting listening to her preparing for the interrogation scene, how she played different kind of roles depending on the person that she was going to be um interrogating and I liked how it kind of was broken up like we'd hear a little bit about it and then we'd have a little bit of reflection, but actually hearing her you know, live voice, like while this was happening, you know, we have seen a lot of really bad, awful police interrogations and this was like She was just like cool and collected. And I think what was so interesting is that she sort of established this relationship with him, with Stephen Gordon. They continued all the way, like even after he confesses to her, even after all of this happens, they're at trial. He's representing himself. He's still talking to her. He's now in jail after the trial. She's still going to see him. So it's really interesting that the way that she does this interrogation leaves this sort of door open to ongoing communication with the person that she is, you know, questioning, which was really interesting to me. Toby, thoughts about the interrogation? I thought it was excellent. I thought they did just the right amount of cutting in and sort of explaining things that were happening and the right amount of just letting it go. And it's, you know, it's it's the real stuff for all the sort of sometimes frustrating artificialness of um, these shows where they have these sort of high stakes interrogations like you're listening to a real one and somebody who's at the top of that game carry it out and i i thought it was fascinating um i i thought it was you know really really top notch i agree i really liked uh in particular when they decided to use the other guys pretending that he didn't want to see him uh, to, let's break his heart and see what happens the tactics of it were interesting the of course it helps that they had a very interesting suspect who wanted to 
talk on some level when he made that thing like if I know I'm gonna get the death penalty I'll tell you everything so clearly he was primed it does not feel like a wrongful conviction in any way with his particular um, you know suspect so it felt like we were listening to a good interrogation and, and a piece of good police work and it is fascinating to watch people who are good at their jobs do their jobs and that's what I mean I mean I just want to clarify Detective Trapp did tell Christopher Gofford the story about her infertility stuff. I know that she's fine with it being included, and I'm sure that she thinks that that it is service to her part of that story. This is what we should be highlighting about her, is that she is good at her job. That's what makes this interesting. You know, those details that are particularly feminine, like, were you thinking at all about the fact that she was a woman in that interrogation room? Or are you thinking about the fact that she's a good fucking cop who happens to be a woman and there should be more women cops? So on that note, let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review to Detective Trap from Wondery. Lara Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Uh, I'm going thumbs up. I really like this podcast. I like the storytelling. I like the character of Detective Trap. It was something that was like very bingeable. Once I started listening, I wanted to just listen until the end because it was just a story that was told in a very compelling way. Um, so I'm a big thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Detective Trap from Wondery? I believe it or not, I'm a thumbs up. I like Christopher Gofford. I, I think he, he tells a good story. You know, I, I feel like it has problems and I wouldn't put it in my top whatever list, but he's a good storyteller. I do think that there are some of the problems I had with it are not things that most people are going to be that concerned about. And I think you can listen to it and be entertained. It's interesting to hear about somebody who's a very effective cop going about their business. And I thought the procedural stuff was really good. I thought the tape about the interrogation was really good. I think the writing for the vast majority of it is good. Rebecca and I have the same basic issues with it, but I think the qualities it has you know, outweigh the problematic parts for me. So, yeah, so I give it a thumbs up. I mean, it's, again, I think it's good, uh, but with problems. I'm giving it a thumbs down. To me, it is a podcast that is actually a treatment for a script for a scripted series about a tenacious female cop who doesn't have kids and can't. And that drives her to help moms keep their promises. Uh, we have a really interesting real life detective here. I think the story did not do her and her work and her professionalism and her accomplishments a service in the way that it was told. I would have preferred it focus on the procedural entirely, focus on the case entirely, mention, you know, that she's a woman in this job and the only one, not so much as something about her being special, because that's sexist what's said because it's sexist to say that only the most special woman can be the only female homicide detective uh because there should be a lot of women in those jobs uh the system itself is sexist and the podcast didn't focus on that at all and that was hugely disappointing to me um but i really do think detective trap herself is a very interesting person and obviously accomplished and good at her work i don't think the podcast did her story justice and it really pissed me off so Thumbs down for me. What about you, Kevin? Uh, I'm a thumbs up. I think right after we see Merritt Weaver give her Golden Globe nominated performance as an empathic detective who is super qualified at her job, we're given a uh, podcast about an empathic female detective who is super good at her job. Um, I liked uh, the storytelling. You know, a double serial killer case is very rare. 
And it's, you know, it's quite, it was quite something to be, you know, on the inside of that. And I don't know, I just, uh, I, I also like Chris Gofford. He's trying to tell a story in a slightly different way. He's also an empathic writer, and I think he was trying to bring that out. I am a thumbs up, uh, and I'm sure that there will be a, a miniseries uh, starring, oh, I don't know, uh, I don't know who might be a good uh, actress who would star as Detective Trap. Mm, I don't know who would put in that role, but it's going to be someone. It's going to be someone. Yeah. It's 100% yeah. going to be a series on FX or Bravo or Netflix or something, 100%. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, the, of week. the week. There arose such a clatter at this Clearwater, Florida house. Police said they knocked down the door to break up a domestic disturbance between Crystal Graham and her boyfriend. It seems Crystal, or Crystal, as Kevin believes it's pronounced, was <laughs> trying to sleep when her boyfriend had the volume on the TV too loud. After yelling at him, accomplished nothing, Crystal took apart the couple's Christmas tree and began beating him with sections of the fake fur. <laughs> the wounds were superficial and the tree was artificial. Crystal was charged with a misdemeanor and released. When the Christmas tree is put back together, her boyfriend might sing... Oh, Tannenbrawl, oh, Tannenbrawl, how violent are your branches? <laughs> you didn't sing it. I'm not, because I don't want to sing about <laughs> domestic violence. That's not funny. Except this is a weird case, so we'll make an exception. Panel, using a Christmas tree as a weapon is bad for the ornaments. Which of their favorite <laughs> ornaments was broken in this brawl? Laura <laughs> Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Um, I'm going with the Christmas pickle ornament. Um, Are you familiar with the Christmas pickle? Of course we are. Of course we are. The ornament Christmas pickle is placed on the tree. The person who finds it gets an extra present from Santa Claus. So this year, nobody is getting an extra present from Santa in that house. Uh, Mm. Poor pickle. What do you think, Toby? Which of their beloved ornaments was broken during this tannin brawl? Uh, I was assuming they're Hulk Hogan. (laughs) 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 I think that's actually a pretty safe (laughs) assumption. (laughs) Kevin, what do you think? Um, I think it was uh, their brass knuckles that were made with uh, popcorn and a string. <laughs> and cranberries. And cranberries. And just, yeah, it was homemade. Kevin, this um, question, not the story, but the question that you wrote for it about breaking Christmas ornaments hits a little too close home for me. I can't deal. Because our tree fell over last year. Yes. And all of my favorite ornaments broke. <laughs> I'm oh, no. still not over it. Uh. Although I still have my bacon ornament, my martini glass ornament, and of course... My Star Trek The Wrath of Khan ornament, which is the greatest one of all. (laughs) (laughs) Laura Bricker, we should probably end on that note. But before we do, do we have a Cat of the Week this week? So we have a quick honorable mention, Rebecca, because I know you like to have a good dog uh, of the week. Christopher Potts sent in Kermit, his dog, who endured a traumatic visit with Santa for pet photos. You can see that picture on Twitter. But our winner this week comes from Kelsey Antrim. Duck, who thinks he's a human of the week, and it is not Mocha. (laughs) Weber and his sister came to me a couple of days old to be raised by my other call ducks. Turns out my ducks aren't the maternal type and tried to eat them. So Weber and Patio, Patito, I'm not sure how to say that, were raised by me from day four. Unfortunately, Patito had to have a surgery at a month old, and he died. Um, But Weber then became the neediest duck toddler ever with a bedtime box right next to her bed, a stuffed animal and a nightlight. He is now six months old and has been finally accepted by the other ducks, but still prefers being with Kelsey. So obviously they needed to have a professional photo shoot for Christmas cards. Of course they did. Yeah. Weber and the Christmas cards. Very adorable. 
and some ornaments in one of the pictures with Weber, Christmas ornaments. So very festive. All right, Laura Bricker. Well, folks want to reach out to you and submit their animals, cats, dogs, ducks, <laughs> to be cat of the week. How can they find you on Twitter? It's at Laura Bricker. And we should also say folks can email their submissions to crimewriterson at gmail.com. We do get them that way as well. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, I'd also like to use you as cover so I can be contrarian. How can they find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm always up for that at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin, if folks want to reach out to you and say, good on you for getting vocal therapy, how can they find you on Twitter? Um, <laughs> Kevin B. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you strenuously to join our amazing community on our Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Everyone there is rad, by the way. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show right now. Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Lara Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Line editing by the handsome Henry Lavoie. Meredith Plunkett is our internet maven. And speaking of, you can subscribe to our newly revitalized awesome newsletter at crimewriterson.com. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, formerly known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we also find things by digging through years and years and years and years of compacted trash. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. We'll be talking about plot points from Detective Trap. <laughs> it says Detective Trap Yogi Guru Predator on the script. <laughs> oh. Sorry, Detective Trap. We know you're not a Yogi Guru Predator. <laughs> Do we? <laughs> <laughs> Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.